As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, along with Tom Keen and Jonathan Farrow. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. Joining us right now is John Micklethwaite, the Bloomberg News Editor-in-Chief, joining us from our London studio. John, thanks so much for taking the time this morning. What was the occasion of your discussion most recently with Mr. Kissinger? Because, boy, so timely. That was, well, that was his 100th birthday. But I suppose I've interviewed him over the the decades in different capacities. Um, And I think the main thing about him being aged 100 is that he had the ability to look back over that life. And it it does go right the way back. We have a Actually, rather good column this morning by Andreas Kluth, who's um, yep. uh, from 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 uh, one of our columnists from Germany. He talks about Heinz Kissinger as he was born, <laughs> and the world in which he arrived. You know, K- Kissinger was born very obviously back in 1923. I think two years later, Adolf Hitler came to his home time of uh, Firth to denounce it as a kind of haven of um, sort of Jewish people, basically. And for the first sort of 14, 15 years of his life, he was continually chased, harried, and messed around before he escaped first to London and then to New York. And I think that that sort of beginning, you know, he, he offers a perspective on the whole of recent history in a way that uh, struck me that only, weirdly, the Queen in recent times has been <laughs> similar to the extent of, you know, Kissinger met everybody he saw sure. a vast amount of history in his life. Ironic for somebody who began life as a history professor. Exactly. And, you know, John, one of my earliest memories as a child is my father and my older brother arguing at the dinner table about Vietnam, about Henry Kissinger, about all of those things. Um, he has served officially and unofficially 12 presidents from President Kennedy to President Biden. Have we ever seen a diplomat with that range of experience? Well, I think we have. Uh, and they were the ones that he studied. <laughs> they were the, it was people like Metternich and Talleyrand mm-hmm. and people like that. Th- those were his heroes um, who lived in a time of kind of warfare in Europe, and it was about bringing the peace. That's, that's how he first you know, emerged as a kind of semi-public figure, was writing about 
the Congress of Vienna and things like that. But those were people who came and went. Obviously, it was a different time. There were fewer democratic governments, um, and and it had a, a different, very ob- a different feeling. But those were the people. Those were the thoughts that he carried throughout his life. This idea that nations have kind of sets of interests, and it's about paying attention to those interests, but at the same time trying to to, to try and bring some degree of kind of loftier aims to it, but never forgetting, you know, that the, the rail in rail politic was something that was very close to his heart. John, I think, you know, for many folks around the world, not just in America, uh, Henry Kissinger kind of represents the whole post-World War II thinking about global diplomacy, global, I just, just the way the East versus the West, that's changed recently uh, in the last four, five, six years where a lot of countries are seemingly more nationalistic. America first, for example. Yes, you just you heard him on that clip denouncing yeah, exactly. America first. That was very un-Kissinger. He didn't like he didn't like that. Um, he he was acutely aware of America's set of interests, just as I think he would argue he was acutely aware of China's set of interests. But he thought that America should play a role that was bigger than that. And again, that was partly because he I think he did not least as a refugee who came to America. He saw America as something bigger than that, but also for political reasons. If you have a hegemon, you know, again, controversial issue whether hegemons exist, but, you know, for a time it was Britain, and he, he, he liked the way that the British politicians in the 19th century managed to keep the peace by balancing different people against each other, and he thought America should do the same. And that's that was its role. It had two roles. One was to promote American interest, promote democracy, but the other was just to keep the peace. And so when it came to things like China and what was happening there, he was absolutely kind of clear that you you couldn't just go to the Chinese and give them a lecture on human rights. And at this point, plenty of people listening to this say, well, that was typical Kissinger. He never cared about those things. I think he did. I think he, he understood perhaps far more... Uh, with far more personal experience than any most of his critics, just how horrific man could be to man. You know, he is not just growing up in Nazi Germany as a twenty-year-old. He went back and visited a concentration camp. He he saw a huge amount of sort of evil done to people in his in his youth. So he wasn't unaware of that side of things. But John- his main his main thing was to try and project a kind of peace. John, we were speaking about this earlier on Bloomberg Television, and I have to say, I keep thinking in my head about the change of social media and the change of the way that information is transmitted and how he viewed that as he did see the world in a sort of right and wrong and trying to push forward certain ideals, how he viewed that effort at a time where the mode of communication was very different. I think that's a really, at least I think that's a really good point. The answer is that the kind of, and and it's not, you know, it's possible to admire Kissinger and be aware of his, um, be aware of his faults. But the kind of paranoid, secretive side of Henry Kissinger, I mean, social media was a nightmare. He he didn't like that. And he, you know, and, and actually he would argue, look, he could not, it would have been far, far more difficult to go reach out to China and bring them in from the cold in an era of social media. He, you know, he went, he went to China on these secret missions. He did, um, and, and because of that, he was able to get Mao to effectively agree to come in. That changed the world history. 
ditto the negotiations with the Russians, yep. ditto other things. His critics will immediately say, well, yes, and he also bombed Cambodia in the, in the background. Well, yes, that, that, that would also be part of it. Yep. But his, underly- in, his underlying thing was to find different ways to bring people together. The interest- one very interesting thing from his perspective was he sometimes talked about the fact that leaders didn't get the same degree of kind of break that they once did. His last book, which was a portrait of um, six people who he admired, people like Margaret Thatcher and Lee Kuan Yew and Richard Nixon, which wasn't that great a one, but the, the stuff on Charles de Gaulle particularly, I thought was an amazing piece of history. But what what he what intrigued him a bit was, you know, you look at somebody like Winston Churchill, you look at somebody like um, Kennedy, would they have survived in an era of um, as much intrusion from great journalists like all of us, or certainly <laughs> the two of you? Um, would would they have survived in that? Would in in the era of gaffes and things, would somebody like Churchill have continued? We don't know. Exactly. But he was he was very acutely conscious of the need to have leaders who could sort of look more long term, who could sort of think about the underlying elements. Hey, John, do we know how? Mr. Kissinger felt about the relationship between the U.S. and China that's kind of, I guess, evolved over the last three, four, five, six years, you know, if, well, at the very least a technology cold war, if not something a little bit more. Yeah, no, I, no this is somewhat self-referential, and I apologize to people for it, but the, I used to do a regular interview with him at the New Economy Forum, and it began as we were in the foothills of a cold war, and, the, the, a cold war, and then we were on the edge of a precipice on a cold war, and then we were near the high mountain passes, <laughs> uh, it, you know, it just generally got worse. I think, I think right now, I think he was, he got gradually more and more pessimistic about it, I think. And I, and I think with good reason. And what I think he despaired of a bit on the American side was he despaired of people who sort of understood China and were willing to look towards a sort of bigger goal. Right, and so those people who criticise Henry Kissinger, you know, in some cases, very obviously correctly for not doing as much about human rights as perhaps he could, they 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 sometime you know hit the lessons of his life, were that you you had to talk, you have to get people to come come together to do things, and you you see what he managed to do in the Middle East, and especially in the context of what's happening now, and you do get some sense of you know the importance of rail politic. One thing which I said to Lisa earlier, which I think is probably true, is that, you know, you look at American foreign policy, this arch rail politica. If he had been running American foreign policy over the past 30 years, do you think that America and the cause of diplomacy would be better or Mm -hmm. not? I think it probably would be better. Very good. John McElthwaite, thank you so much for a couple minutes of your time. We really appreciate John McElthwaite, Bloomberg News Editor-in-Chief. He's uh, reporting to us from London on the passing of Henry Kissinger. Neil Dutta, head of uh, economics at Renaissance Macro Research, joining us now, fresh off his uh, Thanksgiving holiday. Neil, does this data just sort of underscore the soft landing nirvana that you really uh, pin, uh, pinned over the last few months? Uh, well, thank you, Lisa. Uh, you're giving me too much credit. I think I pinned it over the last few weeks. But, uh, you know, I do think that the data is lining up and we're, uh, we're on a glide path now to a rate cut probably by March. Frankly, if you look at core PCE inflation since June, it's up just 2.3% at an annual rate. And there's a lot of disinflation in the pipeline, as we know. We know that 
you know, when we look at car prices at the wholesale level, that's declining. We see that pretty much month in and month out. That's going to bleed into uh, poor consumer prices over the next few months. We know that rental inflation is moderating. Uh, that's going to also bleed into core inflation over the next few months. And the normalization of supply chain should take pressure off of prices for core consumer goods outside of cars. So I think it's highly likely uh, that, uh, you know, core inflation is, uh, you know, running sub two and a half percent, probably, you know, on a six month basis by, by, by the first quarter of next year. And, you know, when you think about the Fed is giving us the playbook. I mean, if we just uh, want to read it, Waller basically told us this week that he's following sort of a standard Taylor rule type of framework. And if inflation slows, the Fed will cut. It really is that simple. Well, I don't want to make a judgment about whether that's right or wrong, but that's what they're going to do. But, so you know, I think. Sorry, go ahead. No, sorry to, sorry to cut in here, but I'm just struck by what you were saying earlier in the year when you were saying people have underestimated how much uh, momentum there is in the economy and that come next year, we're going to be surprised by the stickiness of the inflation, the stickiness of just what we see in terms of growth. How do you pair that idea and the fact that we continue to get better than expected economic data? How do you pair that with ongoing disinflation in tandem with what the Fed was hoping for and even then some? Well, I mean, the economy is holding up, um, but it's clear that there's more disinflation uh, despite that growth. And, um, you know, I think the Fed is looking at what's happening with realized inflation, right? So the fact that actual inflation is moderating, that will pressure them to cut interest rates because they don't want to get real interest rates in their framework unduly high, uh, too high. And so uh, I think really that's what it comes to, down to. Um, and as I say, I mean, Part of this job isn't so much what I think they should do, but what I think they will do. And what they're telling us what they will, what they will do. If inflation continues to come in like it's been coming in, um, the Fed is going to respond to that. I don't think it's a situation where they're cutting aggressively. I mean, I think part of the issue right now, Lisa, is that you know a lot of folks aren't used to the Fed just surgically cutting interest rates. I mean, it's usually they do a lot or nothing at all. Um, but I think what we're talking about for... Um, for next year, for 2024, is really a recalibration of monetary policy. Uh, not, not unlike, frankly, what we saw in 1995, where the Fed came off of a year of very, very aggressive tightening and cut, cut rates a few times, trying to, just basically trying to uh, you know, fine tune uh, you know, their, their monetary policy, which frankly, I think you know, they, they can justify that uh, based on uh, the inflation data as it's going to come in. Neil, I know that earlier in the year, you were also talking about how inflation is gonna be higher for a longer period of time. Do you still think that? I mean, I, I, I do, but the question is around the time horizon. I mean, I think that the economy is growing uh, above trend. That's ultimately going to have some effects on prices. But I, you know, there is a lot of disinflation in the process uh, and in train, and the Fed is going to respond to that. Um, you know, the issue, frankly, is does the soft landing enthusiasm today, does that reignite inflation later? Um, I think that that's something the Fed should keep in the back of, the, of their mind. And frankly, um, that may be one reason, you know, kind of puts a, uh, a ceiling on how many cuts they can do. But I do think we have to get through this period of disinflation first. And I think the Fed is going to react to that disinflation, which is why I think they'll cut interest rates. And they'll probably front load the cuts um, and sort of get it out of the system quickly. Look, they're already telling you that they're going to cut rates. I mean, they were at four uh, 
in uh, in June, as Mike as Mike mentioned, uh, they went to two in uh, in September, and they might they might signal that uh, you know a pause in December and, and pencil in three yeah. three cuts for uh, for twenty twenty four. I mean that that doesn't tell you when they do it, and that's why I say I think given the glide path and inflation that we're likely to get, they probably do it sooner than later. Neil, I'm curious uh, from your vantage point. A lot of people have been saying it's going to be the bond market's dream and that you're going to get an ongoing rally in bonds, that that will tee off an equity market rally. Do you agree with that type of recipe or do you think that it's not so simple, especially if there is this longer term question embedded in bonds of what the new neutral rate is, that actually uh, solid inflation, but not overly hot, a bank that's a central bank that's surgically cutting, that's really positive for risk, but not necessarily on the other side for bonds? Well, I mean, I think it probably may weigh on longer term rates, uh, obviously. Right. I mean, but that's I mean, again, for the stock market, I mean, it's it's ultimately an environment where companies can make money, which should continue to help, um, you know, stock prices go higher. Neil Dutta of Renaissance Macro, thank you so much for being with us. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. The latest from Ford this morning, a new range for 2023 adjusted earnings before interest, 10 billion to 10.5 billion. The previous range before suspending guidance, 11 to 12. We've got a lot to talk about. We can do that now with John Lawler, Ford CFO. Good morning, John. Good morning. Let's talk about it. Where is it? Where's my $10 billion buyback? Why a different approach from you and the team? Well, we have a great plan in our Ford Plus plan, and we're focused on investing in growth and profitability. And through that, rewarding our shareholders with a higher price, plus also paying out 40 to 50% of our free cash flow in dividends. And so we're investing in the business. We have three great segments that are growth segments. Ford Pro, our commercial business, margins in the mid-teens for us. That's very high in our industry. Profits are going to almost double this year, more than double this year. And we have a great opportunity with the moats we have to drive significant profitability. Costs are going up as well. So let's talk about the labor contract. $900 to the cost of each car off the back of that UAW contract. Now, just for our audience, because you're aware of these figures already, GM, who we spoke to yesterday, are at 575. I'm still trying to sit here and work out how do we get from 575 at GM and $900 to the cost of each car at Ford. What is that about? Well, when you look at it, we're $500 to start in 2024, and that grows over time as wages increase. The biggest increase in this contract is gross wage increase. 
it's significant, over 25%. Um, and then our footprint in the U.S. is bigger than General Motors, but um, the rest of that, I'm not exactly sure why their number is that much lower than ours. That's something that we'd have to unpack with them. We know what we've done with this contract. We know what the start point is. It's 60 to 70 basis points on our income statement basis. And now what we need to do is we need to work on driving productivity and efficiencies and reducing the labor hours, the hours it takes to build a vehicle, and reducing that cost. And that's what we're going to be focused on going forward. So it's going to be cost reductions rather than trying to raise prices for the end consumer. Is that right? Well, now, you have to think about pricing differently in our industry because all segments aren't the same. There's different pricing power across the segments. That's why we feel that what we did in segmenting the business and having the transparency around that is important. If you look at the commercial business in pro, we believe there's still pent-up demand and pricing power there. However, in blue, in the more of the retail consumer segment, you're going to see prices come down. We've been consistent talking about that. Back in 13, 13.4% of disposable income to buy a vehicle went up to 157 in 2022. It's down to 14.5% roughly now. We see that coming back to 13.4% as you move through 2024. When you talk about lower price points, I think about some of the Chinese car manufacturers and the production much more cheaply of electric vehicles in particular that are really making a competitive advantage. How do you compete with them, especially given the labor contracts and some of the other uh, working operating costs that you're dealing with? Yeah, it's a good point. And that's something that we're very focused on. Again, the segmentation, each segment is different. We've seen prices come down in the electric segment much quicker than we expected. And the reason for that is that we're moving out of the early adopters who are willing to pay for higher prices. Early majority customers aren't. They're not willing to pay that premium. So we're seeing those come down, and we expect them to equalize with gas prices. So it's all going to be about cost and efficiency, capital efficiency, et cetera. We have to get more competitive on cost, and that's what we're focused on in our second generation and third generation vehicles. What is happening with demand in the EVs? What is happening? Is this real pushback that changes your approach? I think what it is is it's the adoption rate. It's flatter than what we had expected. The increase isn't as great. 50% up this year from a sales standpoint. So they're coming. It's going to be part of the industry. Eventually, we'll get to those higher growth rates. So we have to adjust our capital investment. We have to adjust our approach in the near term. That sounds like a change in execution, not strategy. Absolutely. It is a change in execution, not strategy. So let's talk about the numbers. You've pushed out $12 billion in EV-related investments. Should we expect to see a little bit more of that going on? Depends on the customer and the adoption rate and how that pushes out. If the adoption rate starts to grow faster, we'll increase our capital investments. Let's go through the guide. I've got two points. Sure. I want to see if these are still up to date. So you did expect half the sales to be electric vehicles by 2030. Still the case? Um, no, we think it's going to be less than that, given where the How consumer adoption. How much less will it be, John? We haven't put a number on that yet. We're still looking at what that rate will be. I think we'll know more as we go through next year. Is it the same for margins on those EVs as well? Do you have to reassess how big those margins will be? Yeah, I think as the industry adjusts, you have to look at that. But we're targeting, we've set up our business structure, and we think the right target is around the 8% or high single digits. You said that you're very focused on trying to be competitive in the EV spice on price. Is that, and we asked about margin compression, you're basically saying we're going to see as we go on what the competitive landscape looks like. But how do you plan to reduce costs? Is it going to be with job cuts? Is it going to be with more automation? So when, yes, absolutely automation. That is going to be a key part of what we do. Now, when you look at this contract, it's also important to understand for us where the battery plants are. 
and the battery plants aren't part of the contract. And so that's important for vertical integration. Uh, and when you're talking about electric vehicles, battery and design is really important and the efficiency of that battery and getting the smallest battery possible in. So that second generation design is going to be critical from a cost standpoint. And then overall for us as a company, we have work to do on our cost and quality. And we're focused on that. We've made significant progress over the last few years. We restructured international operations. We moved out of autonomous vehicles and pulled capital investment out of that, focused on L2. We have the best uh, driving system out there in Blue Cruise, according to consumer reports. So we're making the adjustments as we go. When you talk about automation, uh, and, and you, you know, there's a question around job cuts and how much this will reduce the overall number of workers who will have to uh, be employed to make cars. Is that what you foresee, that there is going to be a fewer team of professionals that are creating vehicles in, say, five years than today at the Ford plants. So in certain areas there may be, in other areas we see growth. The key is driving efficiency and productivity. So more coming out per unit of labor. It doesn't necessarily mean you take the labor out, that you get more productivity. That's what we need to drive towards. Let's finish on a delicate question. I ask this question a lot and I'd like to ask it directly of you. Is a Ford F-150 Lightning truck which weighs about 6,000 pounds, really good for the environment. Because I struggle with the association between these heavy electrified trucks and climate change. What is the relationship? Are we kind of kidding ourselves here? I don't think so. I think that there's two things about the electric truck. One, it's moving into electric is important for the overall environment. That's true. But number two, you also have to think about the consumer and what that truck can do. It fills a niche that hadn't been out there. There are certain individuals that just will not drive an internal combustion vehicle. They never had access to a vehicle in the utility like a pickup truck. They now have that. Plus, for our commercial customers, it's a tool. It's a generator. They use it on the job site to power. Now you don't have gas generators sitting out there. Uh, it's electric. It's coming from the vehicle itself. So. It is a good step forward in the environmental push and in reducing the CO2 footprint. That conversation will continue. It's good to hear from you. Great Thank to get you. an update on the numbers as well. Thank you, John. Thank Appreciate you. it. John Lawler there, the Ford CFO. Kelsey Perro joins us now, fixed income portfolio manager at JP Morgan Asset Management. Kelsey, good morning to you. Good morning. The world's moving towards you. Lower bond yields, maybe a slow economy in our future. How are you thinking about fixed income now? So you're right, uh, yields have moved lower. what we've had is the situation where uh, the narrative can take you much further than what's actually happening in terms of reality. Um, and so we looked at the move higher in yields uh, in September and October, getting to 5% on the 10-year. And we did, we did think that that was just a bit too far in terms of a move uh, and that we would look back and view this as honestly a great buying opportunity. We've had a positive view on fixed income this year. Yields have moved back down, and that's essentially brought us back to where we were before the September FOMC meeting. So what I'm really focused on right now continues to be the inflation data. So the inflation data, you know, what do we benchmark ourselves against? It's coming down. It's still above the Fed's target. So you have 
people on both sides saying we haven't done enough, but maybe we have. I look at what they projected in September, and September was a fairly hawkish meeting for them. They were projecting inflation of 3.7% on core PCE. Today's number, if it comes in on consensus at 830, will be down to 3.5% on the year-over-year rate, and will be down to 2.6% on the six-month run rate. So bottom line, inflation is coming down faster than they expected. We think that the Fed's last rate hike was July. We've had that call for quite a while now. We're sticking to that call. And that makes the the moves for yields asymmetric. We can move a little bit higher here for, for sure. I mean, there's a lot of volatility on every given day. But on the other hand, we can move a lot lower if next year we're looking at rate cuts. You said the narrative can take you much further than the reality. Does that mean that we're in a trader's market? So I do think that the technicals and the positioning are very important. You need to understand not just what's going on, but what is the sentiment around what's going on. And you had a couple things that were really fueling that that bearish sentiment in October. One of them was the fact that you had a blockbuster GDP report and there was uncertainty about what was going to come come next, right? We've now at least gotten to the point where we feel comfortable that we're not going to see another 5.2% on real GDP and 9% on nominal GDP. Atlanta Fed tracking has come up. We're, we're normalizing back to around 2%. So we can feel comfortable with that. Um, I think the other thing that you're not hearing any words about anymore is the deficit, right? The auctions. Lisa, I know you love watching the auctions. They've been mixed, right? You've had some weak ones. You've had some poor ones. In fact, you had that five basis point tail on the 30-year auction on November 9th. That ended up being a great entry point into the bond market. And so, you know, Sometimes uh, the, the market fixates on something. Ultimately, we think it's going to be about the fundamentals. Again, what's our view on inflation? Uh, what's our view on the Fed? Ultimately, it's not about if people will buy treasuries. It's at what price do they think it's fair? And if inflation's coming down and the Fed is done, um, Can I jump in? the price is fair. Why isn't the deficit part of the fundamentals? I mean, I think it is part of the fundamentals in terms of the growth and inflation outlook. But here's the thing. The deficit was wider than expected this year, but inflation came down. When you're a country that can print their own currency and they have their own reserve currency, it's not really about default risk. We're not worried about the Treasury defaulting, right? The risk is inflation if you print too much money. We are not seeing inflation. That's because the increase in the deficit this year was because of two factors. One, higher interest costs, but more importantly, lower tax revenue. We're not talking about fiscal stimulus here. We're talking about an economy that was normalizing, revenues that were falling, and then a government that has to fund more because the Fed's stepping out of the way. It strikes me that you said that the moves now are asymmetric when it comes to the bond market. It makes sense to me on the short end, because if Mm -hmm. the Fed is done raising rates, sure, I can imagine that that's the case. For the long end, though, there just are so many variables, as John was mentioning earlier, whether it's the deficit or whether it's the fact that the Fed cutting rates sooner leads to perhaps higher inflation over the longer period of time. How much less conviction do you have over your longer term bond yield call on the 10 year? So there's multiple parts to that question. One, the first thing that comes to mind is that we are moving into a regime where 
we should be seeing the curve steepen. So the, the, the part of the curve that we should see the most rally, the most move lower if the Fed is cutting rates is going to be that front end. So I would agree the asymmetry around yields is more compelling in the front end than that is in the long end. And I do think that structurally longer term, we are exiting a period of financial repression. And so we are probably uh, at a point, and this is a good thing for bond investors. You know, we're not dealing with negative real yields anymore. We're not dealing with 30% of the global bond index having negative yields. This is ultimately a good thing higher real yields, um, but it does mean that we're not necessarily looking at 50 basis points on the 10-year next time we're, we're in a recession, which is what we saw during COVID. It's what Lisa complained about for 10 years in every single column. Yes. The world of negative rights. It's true. <laughs> 100%. <laughs> I stand by it. I think everyone does. It was ridiculous. It I hope was we absurd. Don't that. Honestly, what was absurd about that period is we all knew it was absurd. It was like one of those bubbles that people would come on and sort of like rationalize and justify. It's one of those things where we all knew it was absurd, but it was pinned there, placed there by policy. Policy was deliberately anchoring it. And that was what was totally absurd and original about that moment. The biggest surprise for me is that we heard all these people saying the world was going to fall when you didn't have zero rates. And the fact that it hasn't continues to be one of the biggest surprises that we haven't seen, the complete demolition of balance sheets that were really grown up and that were really uh, raised in zero rate policies. How many people came on this show and said the long and variable lags would be 30 years long? Hardly anyone did. No one did. <laughs> no one did. And now it's like, yeah, they're longer, much longer. Cassie, good to see you. Cassie Barrow of JP Morgan Asset Management. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. The news yesterday evening, I'm sure most of you are up to date, foreign policy giant, Secretary of State in the 1970s, Henry Kissinger has died, age 100. I'm pleased to say we can catch up with Norman Rawl, the former senior U.S. intelligence official and non-resident senior advisor at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Norman, first of all, to you, sir, I know you knew Secretary Kissinger. Can you just help us understand how his approach to foreign policy changed everyone else's approach for the decades afterwards? Yes, good morning. Well, Henry Kissinger was a titanic, if controversial, figure who brought to his work a sense of the importance of a balance of power. He was a creature of a very interesting time, a Jew in Nazi Germany, a military intelligence officer in the Second World War, a scholar during the most dangerous days of the Cold War. His background in the Congress of Vienna of 1815 and that period gave him a sense of the importance of ensuring that key powers found war less palatable than 
and engagement. And also, he brought together a sense of the United States would triangulate, would be have closer relations with key powers than they would with themselves to enable that process to continue. Since that time, every Secretary of State has attempted to emulate uh, Dr. Kissinger's approach, uh, but no one has achieved his extraordinary successes. Henry Kissinger was a highly polarizing person. A lot of people point to the fact that he kind of rejected idealism and really was a pragmatist and really talked about the goals that you ended up achieving rather than the methods of how to achieve them. Where does that play in the strategy of foreign policy today in America? Well, Henry Kissinger's quote on that issue, I think, probably would be uh, a country that seeks moral perfection in its foreign policy will achieve neither that perfection nor security. And I think we see a sense of this in the United States uh, today and in how it deals with the world. There are key core interests. There are lesser interests that can be discarded or at least put aside for the moment. And I think that's how the Biden administration is approaching the world, China, climate change, international institutions, avoiding conflicts which would disrupt the U.S. economy. Do you think that society has shifted dramatically enough to not really go along as much with that type of ethos as it did in the 1970s? I was going to say, you know, how much has social media changed the picture? How much has the immediate imagery? Is there some kind of shift in the population that makes that difficult? It's certainly a very different world, but I think we need to recall that 1968 and the late 60s in general were an extraordinary time in U.S. Uh, and European society with the protests against Vietnam, the uh, protests against our U.S. actions in Cambodia, the U.S. actions in Chile. I mean, this was also a very polarizing figure, and he was able to navigate through that uh, period, with, which also included Watergate, uh, to achieve the successes with the Soviet Union, China, and the Arab peace disengagements, which have lasted 50 years. We now need to talk about modern war and 2023. Norman, let's talk about Israel and Hamas. Hostages have been released. 200 trucks of aid are going in every single day into Gaza. What's the argument against extending this ceasefire, Norman? Well, the argument against extending the ceasefire would be that it allows for the survival of Hamas, an organization which continues to state that it is interested in the eradication of Israel and those who live there. So if you believe the phrase never again uh, is, a, is a driver, you must eradicate Hamas, if only to move to a peace process that is legitimate. I mean, the idea of a two-state solution is certainly everyone's goal, but no one is looking for the Palestinian state to be led by Hamas. So Hamas must be removed from this equation if we are to move forward with peace and a lasting sense of security for the Israeli people. Norman, do you have a sense of where Iran is in all of these negotiations? There was a report yesterday that Saudi Arabia was talking about maybe even giving aid to Iran if they would call back their proxy fighters, whether it was Hezbollah or whether it was Hamas, to try to create more stability in the Middle East. Do you buy into any of these things getting traction? Well, Saudi Arabia, the Emirates, and other Gulf states have certainly attempted to achieve a detente with um, uh, Iran, much as Kissinger looked at for detente with Russia. Uh, and a detente, in essence, means you don't empower your adversary, but you create conditions by which the adversary is not interested in war. With Saudi Arabia and the Emirates and others, there is the issue of U.S. sanctions. So there is a limited amount of engagement in which they can, uh, they can put forward to Iran. Iran has multiple m incentives to continue 
continue its current efforts in the region, but very few drivers to for uh, involvement in the conflict itself. And I think over time, what we're watching is that Iran is not a winner in this conflict, that its, its, its uh, allies have not been able to change the military balance, and it risks losing its primary Sunni proxy partner. Two words, eradicate Hamas. Norman, what does that mean in practice? It means eradicating Hamas's senior leadership, the operational leadership, but it doesn't mean destroying 30 to 40,000 fighters who, by the way, will remain heavily armed in the post-conflict environment. And those fighters and their indoctrinated uh, families and culture must be dealt with if we're to prevent the rise of a Hamas 2.0 or an ISIS. And in the Arab world, and I've spoken with a number of senior Arab officials, they have a concern that this conflict could produce exactly that not only in Gaza, but in places ranging from South a- Southeast Asia to Sub-Sahel Africa. So their, their comment is we've got to avoid this turning into another problem, just as Al-Qaeda turned into ISIS. Norman, you said that these fighters are still going to be there and heavily armed, that some of the sentiment and education has to be dealt with. What do you mean? How is that accomplished? Well, there is a track record for this. Saudi Arabia, the Emirates, have actually an excellent record of de-radicalization. And we've learned a lot from them as they've dealt with their own culture and the region as well. But this requires giving the Palestinian people a sense of hope, a sense of security, and dealing with the, the witch's brew of multiple Palestinian splinter organizations, most of which are dedicated to violence and the destruction of Israel and the United States. With that in mind, Norman, just a final question from us. How do you expect the nature of this war to develop, to change in the coming weeks and months? This remains a likely long-term conflict, although it will play out not necessarily in terms of a, of, of a traditional war. Uh, there are so many factors in here that need to be put together. I think the United States will focus on hostages, return of hostages, preventing an expansion of the conflict, laying the groundwork for the future. But beyond that, I think we're off the map and we should have a lot of patience and, and look for a lower intensity conflict that protects civilian lives while around eradicating a terrorist organization. Norman, thank you, sir, for your contribution. Always valuable. Norman Rule there of CSIS. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, and this is Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.